Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. We're joined this week by Kerry Elmsley, a fearless creative champion and enabler whose journey from staging underground squat parties to crafting groundbreaking immersive experiences with tech trailblazers is nothing short of remarkable. She shares her learnings from producing groundbreaking work by artists like UVA, Crayola, Universal Everything and Mira Kalix. We explore the role artists have in reshaping museums and engaging communities and stick around to the end for Kerry's invaluable advice that can transform your creative career with a simple yet powerful action. Hello, Kerry. Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. What a pleasure it is to see your beautiful face. How are you? Very good. Yeah, very happy. Nice to see you. I'm so happy you joined us. So I wonder for our audience, if you could introduce yourself and where you're based. Uh, My name is Kerry Elmsley. I'm currently the Executive Director of Programme at Acme Museum, which is Australia's National Museum of Screen Culture. I'm currently based in Melbourne, Australia. Brilliant. And so you're coming to us as evening, it's morning here in uh, a sunny Derbyshire in the Midlands where I'm based. But uh, could we start, Kerry, with where your creative journey began? So where did you grow up? (laughs) Um, I grew up by the beach uh, in in New Zealand in a small suburb on the beach until I was 13 where my dad got a job in London and promptly hoiked us all to England, much to my annoyance. So I became a churlish, annoyed teenager for many years. But in becoming a churlish, annoyed teenager, I discovered the underground music scene in London by going to gigs from when I was about 14. And then someone happened to give me a flyer for a squat party when I was about 16. And the wild ride began really by going to a squat party in a fire station at Waterloo that was in 1989 what you would call now the wildest immersive experience you could have (laughs) yeah um and yeah that was when I started really getting involved with musicians and artists who lived and actually created whole worlds around them Mm. could you give us a visual of what you encountered at that time well, um, there were several crews. Um, there was a crew called Screech Rock and then there was also a crew called Mutoid Waste Company who are renowned sort of in that sort of scrap metal, early cyberpunk aesthetic. So a lot of recycled, um, mad, people wearing wellies on their heads, excellent outfits made out of truck tyres, um, a lot of um, UV fluorescent um decor yeah it was yeah a real mashup of early 90s punk and really quite high fashion aesthetics all in right when acid house sort of started to hit england so it was a really big moment of intersection what is it do you think that captured your heart at that time gosh i think i mean at that time, the squat scene was incredibly vibrant and creative. 
the scale of buildings that people took over and the things they collectively did with those buildings, you could see that alongside the sort of politics and culture of trying to live in that way, there was actually a really clear creative output. But I was pretty clear early a lot, like I wasn't an artist. I never have been. I'm not a musician. I never have been. So just the vibrancy of that movement, and again, as Acid House hit, there was a really big explosion of what creative culture could be that really wasn't being defined by traditional venues or institutions or colleges or governments. Mm. So something outside of the mainstream yeah. that was creating an alternative view of what was possible. I mean, I think it was a real, you know, child of punk and festivals and travellers scenes all mashed together. But I think the, the most important thing out of all of that, though, aside from the massive shift in culture for everyone, was the art that many of those people made and continue to make. Were there any characters that inspired you particularly at that time? I mean, I was young and dumb. <laughs> so, I mean, everyone who was making things was incredible to me. And so rather than a single person, I think it was the way that people self-organised and the way people went on the road and, you know, acted as a convoy in a group. There was a lot to learn, that self-organising principles. Um yeah, and really you were judged by how much you contributed. Mm. Could you say you didn't have to be the number one, you know, you, there was there's always leaders and there's always followers and there's always more talented musicians or more talented artists. And they really shone, but I think it's the sort of vibrancy of what the collective did that was what kept me involved. And it sounds like you threw yourself into it with gusto. I left home on my last day of school to go on the road. And how did your folks take that? I don't know. I didn't speak to them for a long time. It was pre-internet. They weren't that happy. (laughs) I apologised to them at some point in my 20s. (laughs) Okay, so you went on the road. Tell us a little bit about what did that involve? I went on the road with a punk band called 2000DS and another band called Screech Rock and we went off to Europe just after a lot of um, big legislation had come in and the UK and the council tax riots and all that kind of thing. Um, So Europe bound we went. Um, We spent time living um, in Amsterdam. We spent time in Berlin before the wall came down doing gigs and squats on the east in East Berlin. Uh, yeah, and then we joined up with the Mutual Waste Company in Italy in 91. Wow. Which where they had a fantastic um, yard, which was in a quarry by the river in a village called Santa Cangelo di Romagna, and they had been invited by a theatre festival to create some sculptures and have a do. And... Uh, <laughs> they just inhabited there and yeah so that took up took me through for to the early 90s and as you were part of this collective what would what were your main contributions at that time oh well I was really good at flyering I was really good at getting money for like when people were busking <laughs> I was not a good busker I was better at getting money for for 
the performers. Um, so really, I think early on, I figured out that you had to be useful. And the way I could be useful was to do some kind of organizing or run the door, run the bar, do cocktails, mm. like just make myself useful that way. So bringing people together. Yeah. I'm curious, what were your techniques for hustling money when they were busking? Oh, God, it's too embarrassing to say, but um, I was in demand. (laughs) I love that. So looking back at that time now through the lens of where you are today, what what would you say were the foundational things that you learned that have contributed to your arts career? Um, Well, I think that living in Berlin when the wall came down or shortly after the wall came down, was a, a really unique period in time where cult, the the whole country didn't know what it was anymore and didn't know how to be. Um, you know, East Berliners didn't know how to be West Berliners and the Cold War had just ended and Glasnost had happened and the Russian army were retreating. This all sounds mega politic, but what I learned in all of that is around understanding your own tiny little part in these huge seismic shifts in society And I think the other thing I learned around the musicians and artists that I lived with was that they they prevailed. They created in whatever environment we found, we occupied, and we made ugly, useless, horrible places like abandoned army bases out somewhere beautiful to inhabit and to celebrate and to party. And, And honestly... The power of a really massive rave or party does, it's transformative for people. So I think that period was really about learning about transformative experiences for big crowds of people at the same time. And where those artists and sculptors and music producers controlled that vibe and their energy. Yeah, that's such a great thing. I'm thinking about where where we get to uh, in terms of the other things that you've done in your career that that mass experience or that shared experience makes sense that it's rooted in those early days and what would you say in terms of living with the artists what did you observe about how they kept themselves buoyant through those different contexts well aside from debauchery and laughter the 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 people I noticed who were most productive were the people who kept their practice up, um, no matter where we lived, whether it was the side of the road or a gut, you know, or a or a yard or a warehouse or outdoors. The people who always like the sculptors who continued to make things all the time, or the musicians who had their own studio in their truck, they they didn't stop making no matter what was going on around us. Um, so while a lot of us were involved in like flyering or bringing a crowd or getting the venue set up, the people who had the most output were the most refined and dedicated. And when I look at where their careers are now, they're still artists. Yeah. So there's a consistency wherever they went, they needed to make. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what you said early nineties, you were um, with this beautiful posse. Where did that lead you to next in your journey? Well, I had a baby when I was 25 and I was like, Hmm, this is, 
like, oh, I guess I have to do this as well. And I sort of very quickly realized that I, the digital revolution was coming and I was completely illiterate in terms of technology, code, anything really. And I happened to be living in a place that was a quarry. So, you know, those two things don't really go together that well. Um, but one of a lot of our friends had babies at the same time. And there's a music producer who I really admired and lived with her. And she just looked at me and she went, Kerry, you you just have to not sleep if you're gonna teach yourself something and do something as well as raise a kid. So I was like, okay. And so I learned to VJ and I learned to build a computer and I learned Premiere. And so then all of a sudden I was a VJ. Mm-hmm. Okay. And <laughs> not a good one, but I was one. What kind of images were you sourcing for your um VJ? Yeah. Sampling. Sampling. So yeah, I had an MX50 and two VHSs. Then I built a computer where with a it's a video card and when CD ROMs were like first out. Oh, the CD ROM. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> but like to be able to just turn up at a big party and have have visuals was more than most parties had. Yeah. So it was really in that spirit of, you know, early 60s happenings where my introduction to visual culture came from. Yeah. I was interested as to where you were sampling your images from, what kind of thing was was feeding you at that time. I mean, honestly, whatever VHSs we could get hold of. Okay. So lived on the we lived on the road, so it wasn't like there was a blockbuster or a film library around the corner. Yeah, so anything you could get from charity shops, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, or like someone would tell you about a film, so you'd figure out how to find one. I mean, a lot of that was living in Italy and Germany and France, so it had to happen in another language as well. Wow! Did you learn any of those but, languages? Yeah, I spoke Italian for a while, but I'm terrible at it now. Amazing. So yeah, incredibly resourceful and that kind of needs must is coming through in terms of having a baby, but still being in this kind of incredibly um, uh, sort of fervent context for making and partying. And so, and what were the, what was the impact on you in in mind, body, spirit in in balancing all of those things so I think I mean I learned I I managed to set myself up a dark room and learned to do photography I had and and I think what I learned in I learned to weld I learned a lot of really practical skills and I think I learned very quickly that I wasn't interested in being mediocre at anything and that I would never be really good So I didn't really want to do those things because I saw very quickly from my own way of doing it that I was like, oh, God, that's a bit shit. Um, So I think what I think the impact was I learned what excellence was through seeing the what other people were doing and the quality and the standard of their particular aesthetic or their approach or their music. So that was one impact. I think the other impact was learning um hierarchy group hierarchy in mm. even in a, living in a really subcultural way living with 25 people or living with 50 people all in all from different crews and sound systems politics and group dynamics you learn very quickly and hierarchies and that stuff could you say a little bit more about that 
Well, the collective is a is an in some people's minds is a really idealized way to live and a great way to make decisions. And there's power and movement in being a big group, especially if you're doing something that's quite underground. And there's also part of being in a group where you get known. So, you know, we were known, we could draw 10,000 people crowd. But, and in that group, if you weren't one of the sort of lead artists, you were just a faceless person in some senses. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a really good, it's a challenge for someone really young as a young adult to forge their own identity within all of that. Mm. So when I eventually took my, I, I eventually just packed up and went, I've got to go learn something, I'm, something different. I remember it being quite challenging to have my own identity outside of being part of a big thing mm. or a group or a collective. How did you go about forming that? <laughs> well, I just took the ba- took the kid and went to New Zealand and took myself to school for a year and learned to code. Wow. So I didn't really have time to worry about it because I was doing 60 hours a week trying to be a coder. <laughs> Amazing. What was the decision behind becoming a coder? I just knew that I, if I didn't do something for me, I would always just be someone in the group doing a thing. Yeah. And coding so, was your way to earning an income? That was in my flawed logic at the time. I'd heard it was a thing. I thought because I could build a computer and do Premiere that I could probably do coding. Turns out I wasn't good at that either, but that's not the point. <laughs> um what did you learn learning. from coding, Kerry? Oh, I could make a alert director and HTML and I made some really cringeworthy projects, but going to school for a year in the year 2000 to learn about um, code as a medium for production, code as a medium for art making, learning to, that, that you could do websites at that time, that you understood the internet, that you understood all of these emerging technologies that were going to change music and production and filmmaking forever. It just meant I had enough knowledge to be able to really shift what I was doing in my life Mm. and shift in a way that the entire planet shifted with the digital revolution. Yes. At the right time, not be left behind. How was it being in New Zealand after being on the road for so many years? It's like... I don't even have words for it. (laughs) I mean, my son was three then and really cute, and it was the first time I'd lived near my family since I'd left home at 17. So it was was grounding. I always feel very grounded when I'm there, but I always feel like I have to leave very quickly. Mm. So a year of coding, where does that lead us to? (laughs) I did some research. I went to a... A uh, conference like people do in real jobs. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to go back to London. I'm going to get a job in technology. <laughs> I was so massively underqualified. <laughs> and, but I'd heard about this DVD studio when DVDs were a thing. And uh, they'd won a bunch of awards doing all these. And if there, there was a thing at a time when people put a lot of effort into making a DVD. Yeah, I remember. And the menus and all that stuff. Anyways, there was this cute boutique uh, design studio that I'd heard about. So I just called them up and said, um, 
you don't know me, but I think um, I think I should work for you. Brilliant. I, so, I love I the balls so of it. And I was like, I've done my qualifications. <laughs> and they were like, but we don't have a job for you. It's like, don't worry, I'm coming. I'll, I'll be there soon. <laughs> oh, that uh, that hustler. I love it. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think I wore them down in the end. And they were like, you're not really a coder, are you? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm pretty. And they were like, we think you could be a producer or a project manager. Brilliant. And after six interviews and God knows how many refusals from other companies they actually employed me bless them brilliant thanks, thanks to them, the pavement they were called at the time and right in the heart of shortage fantastic so this is in the early 2000s 2001 2001 in shortage which was uh, a hip happening place at the time it was still a shithole but it was hip and happening <laughs> I say that because I lived there too. So um, I, I knew, obviously, we didn't know each other at, at that time. Um, but the East End, um, it was only a short, a short way from uh, one of the cent- central London. And yet somehow it was still, still felt like old London at that time, didn't it? Grim, full of squats. Yeah. 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 But amazing, amazingly vibrant time to be in Hackney then. Yeah. So at the pavement, what kind of projects are you working on? Well, I was blessed. I uh, got to work with The Clash and make a Clash. Amazing. (laughs) I produced Requiem for a Dream for Darren Aronofsky. And that was in the time when, you know, when you did the narration over the top where you get the director's whatever, I can't even remember what they're called now, where a director would come in or a writer and they'd narrate the whole film as a sort of alternate channel. So, yeah, got to do that. Amazing. What's, um, what's the guy who did Brass Eye? Chris. And, um, Four Lions. Yeah. Yeah. It'll yeah. come to I've me. Never, yeah, but just really because of the nature of how people got art, the artists who made these things somehow were convinced by the film companies or the record companies that they should be doing that. We got to do all the producing for all of that too. So Amazing. got to listen to incredible stories whilst I was doing quite a pragmatic producing job of brilliant producing. <laughs> so again, learning from the creatives that you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. So the pavement took you to which stage in your journey? Uh, well, then I was like, oh, I feel like having a real job seems like I've done three whole years of that, that I should probably not do that anymore. <laughs> um, so I met some artists called Defuse who were like live cinematic performance artists. They were also sort of used cut-ups from film, but at a level that was so incredible at the time, the organisation called 1.0 that was really thriving in um, Shane Walter, the founder, you know, he'd created a very vibrant digital culture, sort of festival culture scene championing artists who were in that sort of early digital media and sort of film mix world. And um, I'd produced DVUs DVD, so Mike, the founder, somehow ended up deciding I would go and work for an artist because that seemed like a great idea. Brilliant. And how was it? 
It was amazing. We uh, made projects all over the world. Mike um, did this incredible piece about the Congo and tantalite mining. Uh, and it was, you know, where the, you'd see those projected installations that were sort of multi-layered gauzy screens, very sculptural. Um, we got to work with the London Symphony Orchestra to do Steve Reich's Desert Music at the Barbican. Wow. I mean, really, really significant, again, vibrant, emerging times of lots of practitioners. London was really full of um, full of people working in that space and who were getting to travel internationally. And we went and did a big residency in China where we were working with doing an international exchange, curating Chinese artists to work with us around interpreting what is it is to be an individual around 2005, which is, again, when um, Chinese politics had radically changed and embraced capitalism and individualism just before the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And How long did you work together? I think about, gosh, I want to say about four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did go off and live off-grid for a year as part of that. Where was that? I lived off grid and near Valencia in Spain and built a house out of a chicken house and lived with no power for a year. What was the driving impetus for that, Kerry? I think it was that get, it was again that calling to get back to the land and get back to um, living in a more environmentally sustainable way. But it turns out that's really hard if you're not rich. Ah. Interesting. So you did that with your partner and your kid at the time? Yeah, and some other friends who had land. So it was all, you know, we had the skills. But at that time, I think it was 2000, around the economic crash of 2008, you know, just I was able to work because I was working with Defuse in London remotely. (laughs) I would have to drive to Valencia to get phone signal and to have electricity. And so it was all pretty like up and down. And I was very glad when we decided to move back to London after a year, because I was like, I'm not done. and working with art. I can't live on a, in a chicken shed with no electricity for a lot, much longer. And I was very grateful to have hot water when I got back to London. We were very happy to go home and we're still great friends with our friends. We did that with. So, but yeah, it was a year that we needed to do, but if you don't have the economic backing to live off grid, I feel it's just too hard Yeah, in my opinion. I'm interested in this um, testing things out and trying things out and seeing what sticks and Hmm. the bravery to try something new, try it on for size. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? I I I I don't know. I don't know. I just keep seem to keep moving. Did you have an appetite for risk when you were a kid? I think oh, I wanted to be good and be a smarty pants, but then I met um all these wild amazing people who looked beautiful and did cool things. <laughs> I was <laughs> <really> swayed. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember like certain books when I was young, really just opening my head up and going, okay, I need to be there mm. wherever that mental place is. What kind you of know, thing the, inspired you? you know, like reading the doors of perception when you're 12. 
okay. reading all this, <laughs> you know, being precocious about thinking of about the expansiveness of our minds and the universe at a young at an age where you really probably shouldn't have been thinking quite like that. I don't know, mm. but I think that's probably if you really yes dig into it. So seeing other alternatives and wanting to explore what's possible for you. Great. So we're yeah. we're back in London and I'm thinking because we've we've come back, you've tried something new on for size. And so um, from Diffuse, I'm curious that this is sort of in the early 2000, 2008 time now, which yeah. I think is around the first uh, where we first met. Yeah, that's right. So I think uh, I must have come back to London and I where everything changed was I met UVA. A United Visual Artists, who are a London-based art collective um, founded by Matt Clark and Chris Bird and Ash Nero. Um, we got sent defuse where we got pitted against them in a UVA versus defuse live performance <coughs> in Singapore, and they had just done massive attack. Um, so their UVA got really well known when they first started for their live shows with Massive Attack. And they were so amazing and so fresh and new. And, again, they had that group collective dynamic and really a lot going on and what they were doing with writing their own software and, you know, taking minimalism and applying it to live performance in a way, using military-grade cameras to track body movement in 2004. I mean, it, it's really quite incredible what they'd achieved in only two or three years together. And we just liked each other and they said to me, if you can tour, they'd just done, I think we'd known each other for a little bit and they'd just done volume at the VNA, which was the VNA's very first sort of significant digital commission that was in the John, the Courtauld Courtyard and curated by Louise Shannon, who was a curator at the VNA. And I think they said to me, if you can tour this work, then you've got a job for us, a job with us. So I joined and that work toured to six countries and I worked with them for nearly a decade. Amazing. And so you were producing the work in all of these different yeah, countries. Been producer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So once someone called me a producer, I stuck with that bit. Yeah. And so for our audience, could you explain the elements involved in producing those large-scale touring works? Well, I think the very first element is to work with the artist to make sure that they're able to define what the work is beyond its first birthing stage. So you make something once, and if you don't know how to tour it, it's pretty unlikely that it packs up into a truck really cute. Yeah. Um, so I think the very first part is that the willingness and the ambition to tour and to really understand that from the artist, mm. like why, and and then, then you get to the how. Mm. Um, but most of the why up front is that negotiation and dialogue between a commissioner or a festival or someone who wants to bring that artwork somewhere. Mm. And then I think the rest of it is about really functional stuff, like really understanding tech writers, um, 
production schedules, risk management, but mostly it's about taking the spirit of the work, reproducing it as site specific in a site specific context for large scale sculptures and interactive works, um, and understanding that context and that interaction model, because people don't audiences and participants don't behave the same way in different countries. They just don't. Um, yeah, and then doing all the practical stuff of, you know, get making sure it gets there, making sure everyone gets fed, um, handling the press, um, handling the money. Mm. Uh, so un- making sure you up. Unpacking the brief bit with an mm. artist, how would you go about doing that at that time? Well, because they've already had the idea. Okay. And they've already made the idea. Yeah. So they've already done and a lot of people ever get to do. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to get past that very first bit of going, what about this work landed? What would you change, if anything? What do we practically have to change? Mm. Um, and just making sure that your conversation and your dialogue with the artist or artists really enables their vision to be achieved within reality. Mm. What was the most um, remarkable achievement, would you say, when you were working together with UVA? Oh, oh I mean, there were so many. <laughs> um, gosh. Well, we took volume to five countries. So we took actually my first time I ever came to Melbourne was with volume on Federation Square, which is ironically the location of where I work currently. Um, I think some of the biggest challenges were the really, really big shows. Um, we did a piece called Origin with the Creators Project in New York. And it was, I think, the largest sculpture we'd built. What, it, what did it include, Carrie? Yeah. It was um, a giant cube that was really a response to what um, people's worship of technology. Um, the artist Scanner um, did this score and it was audacious and massive minimalism at the same time and it was set down in Dumbo right under the Brooklyn Bridge. And so it was in a really challenging site with a lot of expectations with um, Vice and the Creators Project, which had a massive Intel sponsorship attached to it. Um, And I think just pulling that off with the engineers and the engineering of something so large was, yeah, probably the most challenging. Um, And then in a sort of gallery context, uh, one of the last major pieces I did with um, UVA was the the uh, momentum at um, the Barbican. And so I guess the biggest challenge actually was when we moved into making kinetic work. Mm-hmm. So we did a piece called Chorus, which was uh, had, we did in the Wapping Project in London, but then we took it, uh, we also did it with Opera North and Leeds and our fabricators walked off the job. Okay, what prompted we, that? Oh, they just couldn't engineer it properly. So we were left to figure out how to make this really challenging kinetic sculpture uh, in situ. Mm. Uh, and 
Yeah. So there was a lot of no sleep, but the piece was with the piece was scored by this incredible uh, female artist called Mira Calix. Mm. And the second time we took chorus out, we took it to Durham Cathedral with um, Lumiere, which is Helen Marriage Artichokes big light festival but Durham Cathedral is a world heritage site Mm. so installing a kinetic artwork which is a series of eight pendulums who swing out of sync so they sort of defy the laws of physics um what scale are we talking Carrie Durham Cathedral scale um like the uh, artwork (laughs) well I think it was hung about each pendulum arm, I think, was about four meters, and there was eight of them, and they were hung at about, um, gosh, fifteen. They were hung really high inside one of the world's largest cathedrals, which is a world heritage site. But the the thing that sort of brings it all home, and you know, I can't. Matt, obviously, it's his artwork, and not, and my role really was just as the producer. But working with Mira on the score in terms of working with all of them to bring it together and build it and make it real and alive, we were in the cathedral, Mira and I sat at the front, and um, this older couple, because it had to stay open for worship all during the build. Amazing. (laughs) And um, it was just watching this churchgoers kind of completely be dumbfounded by this work. It, It really, both she and I just, obviously and well we ended up crying and hers a lot of UVA's work and a lot of I should say Matt's work you know his relationship with the musicians and composers he works with is really really important to the Mm. work Mm. so yeah it was a gift I think the other part of being part of that crew was who we collaborated with and where we got to go and all of those really site-specific challenges (laughs) and contexts where you know, UVA currently have their 20th anniversary exhibition on at 180 Studios in London, and you will see, you know, I haven't worked with them for, I think, since 2014, Um, but to see the progression of their work and their practice over the last decades is really quite profound and incredible. I'm a great admirer of their work. Mm. And during that time, thinking it, you obviously put yourself in these incredibly challenging contexts and thinking again that's something throughout your career that you've always um, done and worked with people who like to stretch themselves. Just thinking what kind of um, knowledge, tools and skills did you have to learn on the job? I mean, negotiation number one. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and I say that I mean money. Okay. So aside from the relationship you must have in championing the artist's vision and supporting that in a way that is protective of them but also challenging to them. Yeah. So it's not your place to like it's their thing, it's their practice, right? Yeah. But as a creative producer, it's your role to it's Susie Allen, who was a mentor of mine who ran who's a runs a curation organization called Artwise, she said, You're not a facilitator, you're supposed to be the hero to the artist, but not in an individualistic way, but you're supposed to be able to achieve the impossible together. Mm. Like that's the additive or that catalytic part of the role. And that's the bit I really believe in. It's support, dialogue, 
intellectual challenge and very practical, like getting people real paid. Yeah. Not spending too much money, not blowing the budget every time. Mm. What kind of what kind of income did you have to sorry, Carrie, what kind of income did you have to raise for um or what's the biggest amount of income you've had to raise for your artists? (laughs) It depends. It depends who you're working with. I mean the number changes, right? Yeah. Depends who's paying the bill. Yeah. Would you say you were especially chuffed? with attracting a certain amount of sponsorship for any of your artists? Um, I think when you work with brands or sponsors, yeah, some are a great fit. Some are a dream in that it's a they're coming to you and they're commissioning you as an artist. Where it gets really tricky is where you're having to navigate what you thought was a commission that suddenly becomes a brand exercise. Yeah. So, again, it goes back to the artist or the collective making the terms of engagement in a way that are not defensive, but also you're not allowed that you don't allow yourself to be treated, you know, to, in an extractive economy. Yeah. So, we have, I've had in working with not, a lot of the artists, I work with fantastic relationships with brands and the people around the brands. But it was really about what context was that commission or that opportunity or that sponsorship being created in. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's something to really pay attention to because, especially in an environment where brand experiential marketing, which is very different to a commission. Yes. I don't think sometimes the commercial side of the house um, being the brand or their agency, they just don't treat artists right and I'm not up for that. Yeah. And we've had to, I've had to say a lot of no's to people because it's like you you engage. And, again, we're, we're just, we're not talking about UVA at all anymore. We're just talking about. Yes, generally. You know, engaging with brands. And it's, 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 it was, it's been a lot of time having to deal with advertising agencies again, showing up with all your work in their decks and they'd sold in a ridiculous idea and already been paid and then they come to you with chump change and no. Yeah. What's the toughest no you've ever had to say for an artist, Kerry? (coughs) The bit where you have to encourage someone to not do a deal and they really need the money. Mm. That's the hardest one. And what was your... um, decision behind not doing the deal because art is labor and when you actually add up what's on offer sometimes you just have to go it's not worth it because whatever's written on that piece of paper the work that is attached to that number is by far outweighs what the number is yeah and it gets dressed up and hidden sometimes and you know and especially when you're you know trying to build a career and trying to make a living and you need money, mm. you really need money. So, yeah. Or the the no's are about, you know, <laughs> not showing your work here. It, yeah. It's it's a it's a real art. And I think it's really important that people who make and sell their art have people to trust or to at least at least have a dialogue about it 
Because mm. I know, like, it's very different from, like, a, you know, a loan fee to a gallery or a museum. We're not talking about dealing with galleries and museum. We're talking about dealing with big businesses or big, you know. Yeah. Where they don't live in gallery land or yes. <laughs> museum land or subsidised, you know, grant and commission land. Yeah. It's when you're dealing with, you know, commercial entities, you have to be really smart and you need people who can support you and give you good and solid advice. Yeah. And that isn't, that isn't me and just get a good lawyer or, you know, but you, you have to call in the help of others. Yeah. I think that's very, very sage advice. And I think it's also really encouraging for the creative side there to know that there is always a return on your time invested. Your time, your creativity is the only thing you have. And therefore knowing that somebody else respects it as much as you do knows that actually you need the time and the energy to do your best work but also mm-hmm. there is that quick win but there is never such thing really when you're working with an external you know even the smallest projects can be time consuming can't they even the the one off relationship with somebody can be a long investment for an artist and some of them really pay off yeah you know, it's how you end up with patrons. It's how you end up with commissioners who come back to you again and again. It's just some, not all. And that discernment of the decision-making on money, mm. it's helpful to have, honestly, sometimes it's helpful to have a good accountant. Like yeah, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like an arts expert. Yeah. Th- it, it can be just having people around you where you're like, this is not what I'm good at. Yeah. I'm good at making this. I'm definitely not good at that. You can't tell yourself you've got to be a lawyer and a contract writer as well as a really great artist. I think the two, it's stupid to think that you need to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's also um, lots of external people expect the artist to be the creative, the project manager, the producer, the marketer, the press person, you know, and the accountant all in one. And they mm-hmm. themselves have huge teams. They're just one part of a huge team. And I think that um, I'm I'm wondering whether some element of your experience of working very closely with artists in this way has feeds into the way you work with artists now in an institutional setting. How are you thinking about artists in your new role? If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started.
Yeah. Um, well, I guess after a really long career as being a creative producer for artists where I worked, you know, from the studio side, mm-hmm. looking out and building and protecting and growing and making really long-term relationships, I then flipped and went into working in a design and an agency, mm-hmm. would you believe? And I think so now, and then I jumped and worked at a major entertainment company, building a big world first thing. Um, And in every one of those roles, I was on the other side of the shoe to what I'd spent the last 15 years doing. So it's remarkable how effective independent artists are at time because I was mind blown when I joined a design studio because I'm like, how many people does it take to do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so how does that affect, I think, when I flipped into being able to be a commissioner, I was very conscious, especially working um, in America, the opportunity I had to commission people was big, mm. but the way I did it was to commission prototypes versus um, asking for pictures. Oh, I like that. Could you say a little bit more about that? So when you're trying to kind of set up new experience paradigms or world building in sort of unusual spaces, you, you know, film works in one way, but you're working in an environment where you're asking people to, you know, go outside of the rectangle and build sculptural interventions or things that really rely on a lot of technology and to to operate and to exist and to do what they're supposed to do. And that looks all very good in a deck, you know, in a presentation. You're like, oh, you're going to make this thing. It's like, yeah, but there's no showreel, no deck is going to give anyone the certainty that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Not at that scale, not at large scale. What, not what kind at, of scale, Carrie? Like, yeah, like a mile tall I mean, like, um, you know, the scale like the sphere in Vegas or the scale like massive outdoor sites in America um, or just really large scale projects where you're like these really brave, ambitious ideas need to actually work. Mm -hmm. So I think what I learned about commissioning was to, to pay for and do feasibility studies and prototypes Mm. Which, you know, in architecture they do and in lots of different pra- and in public art they do. But making, bringing, the, and in technology they do, they'll do a prototype phase. Mm. Uh, so just using those phases to the benefit of everybody where an idea has to, well, A, you pay people for it, but you have a short, sharp development period mm-hmm. that ends up with a prototype that everyone can evaluate. The, the, the creative practitioners, their team, the coders, and the you know the finance, mm. and and that's that's where I like. So just, I appreciate you couldn't necessarily give us a a name of a person that you commissioned, but could you give us an example? Because I think we've moved here um, just for the audience. Um, from London and working with UVA, we've now moved to the States in your career trajectory. Is that right? That's right. So I was working with UVA 
Quayola, Universal Everything, Katie Patterson, Studio Rosso, incredible artists, and I got headhunted to move to America. Um, and I'd just done the drone orchestra with Liam Young and John Cale at the Barbican, and it was the level of project that would just about kill you, luckily not the audience. Um, and so it was like a world first. And Liam was at a really, Liam Young is um, a futurist, a director and an artist. He's now based in LA. But it was a very ambitious and challenging project. I'd also just worked with Mira Kalix and produced um, a piece called Inside Their Falls, which had three miles of hand-folded paper, something like 550 paper speakers and a collaboration with Sydney Dance Company. So all these like really extremely prototype-led, untested technology applications and large-scale installations. And I got approached to move to America and go and lead a design firm, which makes no sense. I don't know why anyone would ask me to do that. But my assistant was like, Kerry, you should do this. You should take the call. I mean, why would you not take that call? Mm. I was like, well, I don't know what Second Story is. I've never even heard of them. And then um, my son was like, Mum, I'm really tired of being poor. (laughs) It was like, we should go to America and make some money, Mum. So what with the tide of being poor and (laughs) being just over my skis on ambition and making massive projects with people with massive ambition, but we just didn't. We just made it off the, you know, the smell of an oily rag, as they yeah. say. And it, so it just felt in 2013, I, um, sorry, the end of 2014, I just took the leap and moved to America. And so I spent 10 years there from then until now, mm-hmm. living in Portland, New York, and Los Angeles. Yeah. And with Second Story, what kind of projects were you working on and, and realising with them? So I became their chief creative officer, which is a completely different role to a producer, but it's the same role where we were, um, I would say, what a design studio that focused on interactive and immersive experiences for both museums and commercial clients. So we then that was then I learned to work in that museum context, learn about interpretation, audience engagement, all of the kind of formalities around using digital technology and interactive paradigms within a museum context at the same time as learning to use them within something like the Museum of Coca-Cola or, you know. So it was a fully commercial company owned by Publicis and it was going through great change. They had just their founders were an independent couple and they just sold the business and they'd hired me and their founder had selected me to like take on that creative leadership role as the studio, we had three studios, uh, evolved into being owned by a big company. So again, a position of great change where, yeah, we had to work in between a museum paradigm and a massively commercial paradigm. Mm. What were the biggest takeaways from that time for you? Change is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody likes you when you change. Like when you get hired to transform things and and outcomes, no one's like, yay, I really voted for this. Yeah. So 
the thing you learn is how to find a common goal and a common ambition, a common creative ambition, one that everyone sees themselves in, and figure out how to work, get there together. Yeah. And what was the toughest thing that you personally experienced at that time? I mean, I'd gone, I'd spent my, I'd never had like a, I'd never worked in a corporation. I'd only ever worked with artists. Mm. Like, so I was suddenly in a C-suite of a publicly traded company. So the toughest, but also the most rewarding was to learn dynamics of like corporate leadership, corporate structures, and, and what like formal I, I want to say formal structures of leadership because I'd never really been a leader officially because a creative producer role is a behind role. It's not an in front role. Yes. I'd never had an in front role. So I had to learn very quickly how to transition all of those skills from being behind into what that looked like creatively leading mm. other. And they were des- they were amazing designers and experienced designers and content strategists and storytellers. And I have really long relationships with many of them still, and they're great friends. Mm. But I think if they were sat here right now, they would all look at me and go, that first year was just bonkers. <laughs> I think first first years in most jobs for us, uh, you know, it's like being a cat thrown into a bath, isn't it? And um, I think I'm interested in this idea of moving between, so you've mentioned you know, the hierarchy when you were working with the collective when you were younger and sort of learning the kind of the people skills and how people interact. And again, in this company structure, how did you learn what kind of leader you wanted to be? Well, they made me read books and do courses. <laughs> <laughs> they do like all these personality tests on you and stuff like that. It was hilarious. But actually, you know, there's a whole science to leadership apparently, and I had to learn some of it. Um, But the thing that remains true and remained true the whole time was the creative potential of the people that you have. Mm. They were hired for a reason. You can look at the work they've done and they do and go, here's the really brilliant parts about what you do. And hold on to that and grow that and and hopefully you can create new ways of making or like um, a lot of the second story team hadn't worked physically so much, like in terms of with materials or in, you know, outside of digital. So just finding new paths to make and grow their ambition, mm. that was exciting for them, mm. I think. I think that's. Yeah. And what was the most exciting thing for you? Seeing what we made. Seeing what we were able to do after five years together was a, you know, was a giant leap from where we began. And, yeah, learning from really incredible designers Mm -hmm. because I hadn't had that experience before of what really strong visual design and interaction design looked like. So, yeah, learning from them. And uh, learning, you know, America is like New York is different to Atlanta, which is different to Portland. Yeah. So three studios with massively different cultures. Mm, in what way? So learning to live in America, 
<laughs> well, it's like every state is a different country. Yes. What were those differences as you saw them? Oh, <laughs> this could take hours. Um, just what's socially known around how you speak with encouragement in one state is different to how you speak with encouragement in another state. What do you really mean when you say, that's a great question? <laughs> like just you would think that you speak the same language, so therefore you wouldn't have to learn the cultural transition. But it took me about three years to figure out just the nuances of everyday language. Mm. Yeah. That's so always learning. Yeah. I'm and always being un try actually at risk of being misunderstood and being misunderstood. And being prepared to be misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and try to make up for it. And how did you experience the difference between working with artists and designers? Well, I mean, that's the old question, isn't it? About art creating a problem and design solving a problem. Ah, nice. I like that. Working in a commercial design context, you're being asked to solve a brief and a problem. Mm. So your focus is constrained your goals are really set within those boxes, and there's huge creativity within that. Yes. Whereas an art practice is defined by the artist who's doing what they want to do because they want to do it. Mm. Interesting. And what would you say you could offer up to both creatives to learn from each other? Well, constraints are a gift. And even when you make large-scale sculpture, you work with a brief and a set of constraints by the sheer physics of structural engineering and site conditions you work with. So there's similarities there. I mean, I haven't worked with many any painters really, so I couldn't, I don't know the freedom of just being a solo practitioner and painting. So I think when you work with physical objects and things that require engineering and things that have to get turned on and turned off. There's a lot of practicalities in that. And, and the thread between all of that is the skills of being able to visualise and draw. I think if there was one thing I saw people really commonly need to do is have a very quick way to express themselves, whether that be hand drawing, whether that be, you know, being good at architectural software. but the ability to express themselves quickly was the the fundamental. And that could be writing too. Where I saw people struggle is how hard they had to work to express the idea if they couldn't draw or if they couldn't, you know, visualise it very rapidly. So, yeah, such a great point. I think that staying in flow regularly is something that I talk to artists in particular about um, daily actually and the importance of that being the kernel of who they are and how they move through the world so being in tune and in touch with their creativity literally informs how they parent how they have a relationship how they communicate with their friends but also how they move through the world and if that isn't present because of i don't know ton of admin or other things that actually they get into that staccato relationship with their creativity 
and that's when the kind of blockages start to happen. Um, so from second story, we take a, we, we, we leave that because you achieved so much there. I'm just, and you obviously you achieved a lot with the team and actually being able to look back and see what you did together is amazing. Taking them through organizational change, but also forging and manifesting enormous scale projects. So this kind of working at scale with a community of creatives is something mm. that you've really forefronted throughout your career. What took you from second story to the role that you inhabit now? Well, it's a beautiful arc. And I think um, I told you that I originally came to Melbourne when we installed volume for, with UVA. And second story ended up doing a huge job in Melbourne where we did develop did the co-design of the redevelopment of Acme Museum which meant uh, working in a co-design practice with the museum themselves, BKK, the local architects, on um, a multi-million dollar renewal of the whole museum, including their massively successful permanent exhibit called Story of the Moving Image, which traces the beginning of the moving image and film right up to uh, screen culture today. So... When we worked on that for three years, it was a huge job and that everyone, I was so um, proud of everyone's work we worked so hard. We committed to flying to Australia all the time because we really felt that that museum at that time and the things they wanted to achieve for experience and design and to honour screen culture, which is really where my career has been the whole time, you couldn't have had a better opportunity and we all just, we went super hard on it for three years. And then then um, I left and went on to do something else for a couple of years. But COVID happened and I'd never seen the build of the museum. And, in fact, none of us had. <laughs> so we saw these pictures of it opening, but obviously, you know, things opened and closed all the time for a couple of years. And so everyone who worked on it for so long hadn't, they just saw it through these pictures and these videos and no one from America had been able to get into Australia. So it was at a time where I was reconnecting with artists a lot. I was based in Los Angeles and um, I was doing a bit of work with <laughs> artists again, consulting them and on career growth and that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, I should probably maybe just go back to working with artists. I've done my time. I've done my time you know, the incorporation world. But I was also tempted to, I love LA a lot. So then um, Acme ended up advertising for an executive director program and I had never thought about, you know, what came next. I was sort of right in that mode. In fact, I think I talked to you at the time going, I really need to be back in art, not design. And I'm not quite sure how to get there. So the job got advertised. Yeah, the job got advertised. And because of the nature of it being a museum of screen culture, which really explores how the world engages with film, video games, digital art, there couldn't be a subject matter closer to my whole career in sense. And I really loved the vision of the new director who had been part of the team I worked with. So I just 
straight up went, okay, I'll just apply for a job in Australia, even though I was very happy in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. And then uh, I worked like a little school kid on my job application and um, went, flew to Australia. And I was like, well, even if I don't get the job, at least I'll see the museum that it's spent three years working on. <laughs> and when I walked inside the museum and saw what we collectively had done, important thing there was a co-design and a collective project. Yes. Um, yeah, I just practically cried because it was so beautiful. And I did get the job. <laughs> but my 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 mental mass was it would have been worth it just to go see what we'd made, even if it didn't turn out that way that I didn't end up. Yes, indeed. I think what's so beautiful about that story, Carrie, is just the what's coming through all of your journey is the deep attention to the relationships and the commitment to relationships over time of working with creative people to manifest incredible things more than all of you possibly imagined was possible. You know, so all the way through your career, there's a, a willingness to give it your best shot, the yeah. willingness, the belief that it could be possible and the commitment to the time, the energy and the wherewithal just to see if you can actually put it off. And uh, um, there's something in that belief in the impossible that seems to be running through everything that you do. So to Im imagine you walking into the space and seeing the reality of what you created, and um, I'm not surprised that it it kind of brought you to tears. But also what warms my cockles is I, I don't know many people in positions like you that have actually been part of um, the sort of the development or the birth of the the institution or the museum in quite that way. I can think of people like Eddie Berg, for example, who was instrumental in sort of developing FACT, the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology in Liverpool that I worked at many years ago that came out of um, an agency model of um, film, video, new media, working uh, sort of nomadically in the city of Liverpool and then the museum came out of that. So it was very much kind of came from the ground up, if you like. Yeah. I mean, Acme as a museum is 25 years old and when its founding principles were very much that early, late 90s, early 2000s, um, ex experimental media art practice. So it was really radical when it was formed. Um, and now it's, um, and now, you know, it's a baby in museum years because we're 25 years old. But because of the focus of our work and screen culture, you know, we really are focused on being a legible and accessible um, museum space for um, creating the dialogues around futures, multiple futures and not just a single future, so not a techno-utopian vision. In fact, a digitally literate and informed citizenship who have the faculty to live in an AI age. And, and that requires artists, filmmakers, video game makers, that requires of us all to grapple with these really big tectonic shifts and what it is to what is a fact, what is real. Like these are 
So it's a kind of really huge responsibility to be a museum of this because we have to be able to act as a communication medium, not just for the expression of cinematic arts and video games and but the expression of digital culture and how we understand knowledge and create knowledge. So it's it's a yeah, it's a huge challenge and opportunity. And I'm really grateful to be here. And I think, you know, the story of the moving image is successful because it 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 makes people engage in a way, whatever age they are, whatever background they are. And we have, you know, it's a free um exhibition, it's a free offer as part of the museum and yeah that's a it's a really been really tremendous to just see how that work has landed and is doing that but it's the work of being a screen culture museum is you know ever changing and that and that, that's our duty to kind of be have knowledge share knowledge and make not the acquisition of knowledge around culture screen culture in particular possible and easy as well as challenging yeah you you use the word legible in making the museum legible what does that really mean um in today's society so i think we talk about it a lot and i think like it means like understanding why an artist made the work what context did they make their work in so we can't assume that an audience works walks in and is able to, like label text, for example. You can't assume that somebody understands the context of this piece of quite challenging interactable video work or three-channel work is without explaining it into a way that is not like art speak gobbledygook. You know, a, a gallery can do that. A gallery can do whatever it wants. It puts up some walls and the art is in it and the burden is on the audience to figure it out. Yeah. And as a museum, our remit is to not make it so hard to figure it out and to offer context and, yeah, to offer context and ways in that don't require you to have gone to art school. I had a conversation just yesterday um, with an artist Um who will be listening to this, I'm sure, and know who they are. Um, and we were talking about wall texts for, and there's a there's a show on in London at the moment. And um, I don't want to embarrass them or the curator by saying, but I was in this conversation saying how the show was very interesting, but the wall texts kind of drew me insane because they were so overly academic um, that even though I'm a committed um, contributor. I hope to the arts ecosystem that the the language that was used was really for a very small percentage of people who were going to visit that exhibition. It was for academics or artists working at a higher level, if you like. And but the work that was on display was really doing a lot of that complex thinking, you know, and that actually we could experience that complexity in the work itself. And my desire was that this work that is complex, and I don't believe in dumbing down in that sense. I believe that everybody who enters, you know, is intelligent to experience the work, 
intellectually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, somatically, they can experience it in lots of different levels. Therefore, the labels are really that jumping off point. And the artist said, I, I get that, but particularly because of the women in that show, it's important that they that a lot of people don't feel that they're being dumbed down, their work is being dumbed down, that they believe that the audience is intelligent and is smart enough to, you know, to figure out complex um, interpretation. And I wondered what what was your take on that and your experience in trying to make uh, a museum accessible to a broader public? Well, I think there's a all of those things can coexist, and they can coexist. If with comfort, if you're understanding who you're writing it for, or, and we're talking about, I don't want to get stuck on the wall text because there's multiple ways to communicate the context and the background to a work or the, the sources of a work or why something is set in a place. Um, you know, we use the lens to do that, which is like um, a way of engaging and learning more where you can just tap and take away more information. And we also, you know, as a multi-platform museum, we have multiple ways to publish with depth. So again, it's about being able to hold a really short, pithy thing as well as a very in-depth thing, and both of them are valid and neither of them are dumbing down or talking down to anyone. But it's 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 work to do that. It doesn't, it's not easy. And you constantly have to be checking yourselves and checking your audience and you know, it's balancing museum practice with the speed of cultural change and knowing, understanding who your audience are. Yeah. From your perspective, what's one of the fundamental things you've learned in order to make the museum as accessible as possible? Well, your program has to be exciting for a start. <laughs> um I'm I'm still learning from like I'm actually not the audience experts. Um, we have a massive team of like insight people. Our visitor guides are our audience experts. They're the we almost have a concierge level of service and explanation for creating context at Acme that's led by our visitor experience team. So there really is multiple ways to chat to someone um, and to engage with someone so that the program is only part of the offer, but it's the experience of the program that really rounds that out. Um, and that's not the thing I'm expert in, and that's why we have to really, it goes back to collaborative practice every time. It's really hard to collaborate. It's the, the thing that we always do is you, you kind of, everyone's in their lane getting really good and being experts, and then you're like, oh, yeah, we have to have this mesh and that mesh is hard and messy sometimes, and it's uh, collaboration always has to be refined. There are points of collaboration where you're like, it. This feels like it's taking a long time to go, not very far. But that interdisciplinary practice and expertise is what creates an experience that is a richness and a depth that requires the different expertise to fold into. And what role do artists um, play in bedding the uh, museum into the context? 
Uh, it's interesting because we're just about to open a big major show with Marshmallow Laser Feast, and it's their largest and f- their first big monograph, well, their first monograph show at a museum. So I think what we're doing is often working with people who have inhabited one space in their practice and are forced into that mess of collaboration with us because our expectation of their art is that it can speak to our audience. And so the exhibition design, the interpretation design is something that we do in the case of Marshmallow Laser Feast. We've done in deep collaboration with them because it's their largest show to date. It's their largest show within a museum context. So, yeah, just delivering the artwork is not what it is. And the next art, the the next team artists we're working with for the next show, similar thing. Like, got a large body of work, but really having in depth collaboration with our curators and our interpretation and our experience people is really a deep engagement and in. in exhibition and experience making for them too. Mm, that sounds amazing. So they really become part of the museum life. Yeah, for the period of developing the show, yeah. And have you brought your prototyping into this new role? Well, we have in that the curators look at the body of work. We look at like what is the sort of the practice or what are the ideas that those people are working with in the case of Marshmallow Laser Feast, they're really deeply attached to uh, interbeing and interspecies communication, in particular the critical need for humans to understand that they're just a tiny part of an ecosystem Um, and how they do that is, you know, engaging in sort of communicating with trees understanding forest communication, uh, becoming a breath inside your body, um, uh, jumping out into a black hole. And and all of that is somatic in many ways. I mean, people Mm. use the word immersive, but a lot of it is somatic because, Mm. I mean, I, I don't think they literally have spent a lot of time with black holes, but they certainly have spent a tremendous amount of time with the trees that are part of their work. So they've lived and embodied the practice that they're bringing into their installations. Um, so I think that we we ask them to change their practice in that by creating a new challenge with a bigger space or a different context, they the artworks have to change. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it's a growth and a learning for the artists as well. So that that's a rewarding challenge versus, oh, I'm putting on a show. Yeah. How did you work with the museum on their payment plans for artists? Oh, well, they have, we have like Australian museum practices pretty well, I want to say regulated, but I'll say organized is we have a legal team. We have a contractual payment stages. We have, memorandums of understanding and agreement. So it's all very fair and structured. Mm. And I feel very proud of that. I'm very proud to be part of that. And is commissioning still central to your your annual program? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
I think when you started, you brought in the artist Memo Atkin, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we uh, didn't commission that work. We brought the work Distributed Consciousness, which is a tremendous sort of meditation on the nature of consciousness, our relationship with that technology. He was struck that uh, a cephalopod or an octopus was very much like the consciousness of the internet in that it was a distributed intellect. Um and that's a really beautiful, powerful, very complicated idea. And the work on the surface, he, we designed, or he designed the installation, and again, the museum team really shaped that installation into being a unique site-specific work. But it is that holds that comfortable thing of being legible, a little bit spectacular, but deep and rigorously researched on mm. the nature of consciousness and the implications of the coming AI age. And Memo is a professor of machine learning. He's one of, you know, a deep researcher in the field and leading in that field. So I think that's where I mean about legibility and depth can coexist really if mm. you're intentional. Yeah, I love the idea of you bringing all of the artists that you've worked with and um, learned from over the years kind of really contributing to how you shape and develop the museum um, as a sort of expanded site for deep research in relationship to technology in particular. So I know you've given me so much of your time and because you've had such an amazing creative career. I'm thinking there's two things I wonder if we could close with, if that's all right, Kerry. One which is I'd love for you to share your take on the core challenges that you see institutions or museums um, in the digital age mm -hmm. and um, from your experience. And lastly, your take on what's left for you to learn in terms of, you know, where would you like the stretch to be for you? Because you've, you've, you've had a lifelong learning approach to everything, everything. And I'm curious, you know, what might uh, tempt you in terms of uh, the stretch for you in your creative career? So I think, again, I'm not a lifelong museum worker. I, I'm a new museum worker. But I would say that cultural institutions and museums' greatest challenge is to remain invitational or become invitational versus remaining because a lot of them are not invitational. And to be able to move at the speed of culture, which is sounds like that's the opposite of what a museum is set up for. Yeah. But I think a, a museum is a live ecosystem and each museum has to examine what being an ecosystem for the thing it's set up to do means in the 21st century. And then do how you have any the workforce and the roles and the program to respond to that challenge of improving museum practice to be fit for purpose in the age we live in and not throwing, you know, whilst upholding the value of collection and archive and expertise and mm. research and study. But you have to be fit for the century you're in. And technology is part of our century. Fundamentally, it's not an imposition. <clears throat> yeah, fundamentally.
So in terms of what you've learned over the last year, what would you say other institutions or museums could learn about technology and how that could contribute to growth and sustainability? Well, there's the your own infrastructure practices. So I think where I, I think the challenge is less about the ambition of the program, because I truly believe that curators and researchers are out at the edges exploring the changes in the world and the the ramifications of those changes as part of their creative practice. So I'm, I don't worry about that stuff. Mm. What I worry about or what I think is critical is the commitment of leadership to have an infrastructure that is right-sized and right-abled in terms of enabled where you're using basic technology practices to have an effective operation that means working for the museum is not a paralyzing thing. So I think Mm. organizational infrastructure sounds like the most boring thing to end on, but I, all of the things I'm fascinated by infrastructure because Mm. I think it's this big hidden thing underneath the way we operate at whatever scale. And so commitment to infrastructure to be able to operate is a really important thing. I love what you said about um, getting it to the point where it's not paralyzing. Because I think certainly having worked in institutions myself and also supported artists and creatives working with those institutions, I think the um, the number of decisions that need to be made and the way that they are made definitely influences what is possible what's possible for us to produce, what's possible for us to show, what's possible for us to manifest, what's possible to engage people in the process. Yeah. So if that infrastructure isn't fit for purpose in a technological age, mm. then we are hampering the positive creative growth. And I understand from what you're saying that actually, you know, Institutions that really assess what technology is for us humans and what it can be for us humans and having a place where we can be critical and rigorous needs to be matched by an infrastructure that can assess it and program and produce it and stage it and evaluate it effectively. So we can't have an analog system supporting <laughs> an analog system that is, you know, rooted in the 20th century, which so many of our institutions are still, partly because of the finances. Yeah, that is. It's it's not an easy. I mean, people run museums or hardly any money. So like yeah. tough decisions to commit to infrastructure, that's not an easy thing to commit to for any leader. I don't. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but I I do think that we have to be relevant to our audiences, whatever our subject matter is, and Mm -hmm. making it easy to have an expressive program and change your program and engage with research in a way that's legible is how museums are going to stay full of people. Yeah. So what's left for you, Kerry, in (laughs) terms of new, new territories? What well, new territories are there? Well, I became a grandmother tonight, so that's an entire Yes! Con- congratulations, Gary. Yeah, I'm so year. happy for you. Uh, Grandma, yeah. Elmsley. 
<laughs> um, well, there's always something new, isn't there? I mean, I was yeah. in Adelaide and I was part of a weaving circle with some incredible researchers and practitioners on Monday, sitting there covered in blue dye, learning to weave. And you know, I'd never been to Adelaide and I keep moving and I every many days I wake up and go, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> so honestly, what's next is everything is a stretch. I don't think yeah. I've ever stayed anywhere that it wasn't. Yeah. So so it's important for you to always have a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. And there's um there's something about you uh, putting yourself in a position where the stretch is almost scary. <laughs> it's okay. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, sometimes I'm like, maybe I should do this less, but I keep doing it. So I'm compelled to mm. keep doing it. And I'm mostly compelled to keep going because of the clarifying vision of artistic directors, artists, brilliant minds, other not my own. Mm. <laughs> so you love empowering people to make change possible. Yeah, and, you know, being additive to that. Yeah, amazing. So I wonder, as a final parting gift to our audience, would you have any uh, recommendations to encourage creative people to keep going during challenging times? Well, I think the encouragement is you have more backers than you think you do. Yeah, I, I think that very few people think about the relationships they already have. and. Sometimes it's worth to just say hi to people that you haven't chatted to for a while. If you're feeling in a funk, you don't have to qualify yourself by the next new thing you're making. Sometimes you just have to reach out and connect with people because there really are a lot of people who are fascinated by you. You've probably already met them and they might just checking in will give you a new perspective because sometimes just hearing about where other people are growing new things and kicking off new things just will set your mind off in a different way. Yeah, love that. Thank you so much, Kerry, for sharing your incredible creative journey. What an extraordinary <laughs> artist, supporter, champion, creative champion you are. And uh, I cannot wait to see the program unfold even further um, under your direction. But also thank you for being so open and honest and sharing it with us. Well, I hope it was a, a joyous ride. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for being curious. And I really appreciate what you've set up for artists and creators because mm. it's a rare thing. And I know many people who are benefiting from engaging with you and your program and all its myriad forms. Thank you so much, Carrie. That means so much to me. Appreciate it. Carrie's dedication to understanding the intricacies of artists and designers' processes empowers her to align seamlessly with their visions, fostering ambitious collaborations that truly thrive. Her profound insights not only elevate the work she produces, but also enrich the communities she engages with, 
whether it's the Mutoid Waste Company or the Museum of Screen Culture. She champions the optimal conditions for artists and designers to flourish, recognising the critical role of infrastructure in unleashing creativity. Her adaptability within current constraints doesn't stifle her ambition. Instead, it fuels her commitment to reshaping our reality. Despite the challenges of collaboration, Kerry's unwavering determination drives her to embrace new frontiers and take calculated risks alongside the innovators she champions. Her experience of working with artists and designers operating at the cutting edge of developments in technology positioned her perfectly to envision how the museum of today might need to develop in order to better serve its artists, staff, stakeholders and communities. My reflection from our conversation is that addressing this issue isn't solely about financial resources. Whatever the scale of the organisation, it's equally crucial to establish a solid framework for cultivating innovative thinking and crafting effective creative solutions. So many of us in arts organisations are there because we love art and artists, but have not been taught how to negotiate or work effectively together in teams or in communities. So it's wonderful to know that people like Carrie, who's committed to artistic vision, supporting others' growth and getting shit done, whatever the challenge, are ensuring a wider community gets to enjoy the benefits of artistic excellence. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.